So Psalm 41, I'm actually just going to look at the, the first couple of verses of this psalm. Um, and I want to take you, some of you don't know me super well. Some of you know me pretty well. Uh, some of you lived through this period of life with me. Um, so I just want to kind of, for all of us, I want to take you back in my life uh, to uh, the year of 1998. The year 1998 was a year that was a really difficult financial year for our family, for Dana and myself. And at that time, we had three kids. Dustin uh, hadn't been born yet, but we had three little kids. Um, and the church that we were serving in um, was going through a financial crisis. Um, the financial crisis basically was that in three years, we had had three church splits. So if you've ever been through a church split, we went through three of them in three years. And so 1998 was the first year we did not go through a church split, but um, I took a 35% pay cut just because we as a church couldn't pay. Uh, so we were living on very little for that year. I think it was $22,000 for the year was our salary. Um, and we just we just stepped out in faith and said, this is what we're supposed to do and this is what God's going to do. And, and he did. So, but here's the thing. The reason I tell you all that, I got to give you that context so you understand this. One of the things that I remember most about that year was a quiet and generous woman at our church named Kathy. Now, most of you, even those of you who walked with us through that, don't know this, but I'm going to tell you maybe for the first time. During that time, uh, the, the, the salary stuff and all the crisis, whatever, got up for a vote for the church. So the church kind of knew we were taking this big salary cut and the church kind of knew it was going to be a struggle for us. And so Kathy, after all of that was done, came up to my wife and said, I want to do this for you guys. And I don't want anybody to know about it. I want to buy like every other week, I want to buy just meat for you from the grocery store. And I know that's one of the expensive things, and I know it's going to be a struggle for you. So she didn't make a big deal of it. She didn't tell anybody. She made sure it just kept between the two of us. And so every other week, we would go to the freezer in the church kitchen, and there would be a package of ground beef or chicken or cuts of steak or whatever. And she would just leave them in the freezer, and we would just pick them up and take them home. And nobody else knew about it. And I have to tell you, that sticks with me. Because I don't know that she spent a fortune on it, but it was this quiet generosity that showed love and kindness and care for my family. A few years later, I went to her funeral and I sat in that church and nobody else knew the story except us. And I just sat there and I thought, I sure hope that Jesus can tell her how much that meant to me. I hope she can understand now. There's something about that moment in time when you are in need, when you are weak, when you are hurting, and someone with just kindness, it doesn't have to be some sparkling personality or some grand gesture. It was just quiet but sincere. And so I'm so thankful to be a part of a church like ours that gives a part of a church like this that loves like you guys do. I love being a part of that church. The followers of Jesus Christ have always been givers. If you have ever been around a genuine group of people following Jesus, they are people who give. 
And if the people you around say they are followers of Jesus, but they are not givers, they aren't following Jesus. How do I know that? Because Jesus is a giver. He's the ultimate giver, the generosity that flows from him. He gave so much. And so how can we do anything less? How could we be anything less than a giving people? And so I'm thankful here at Hope that there is a heartbeat inside of you. I don't take any credit for it because it it isn't the same. I don't have that kind of great, sympathetic, empathetic gift that a lot of you have. But there's a heartbeat that beats here that the Spirit of God has stirred up so that when God brings a person or a family in need our way, we don't always get it right, but we always try to. And sometimes we nail it. And I am so thankful for that. Because helping people in need reflects our Father's heart. And, by the way, the one that we say we follow, the one we name ourselves after, Jesus Christ, Christians, said we'd be known by how we help people who are hurting. By how we love. Some needs show up around you and you can see them. Not all needs are physical. Not all needs are financial. Many of them are. But many are not. And so we give to people in our church here at Hope. We collect food and we have a pantry and we hand it out and we collect money when we need to for somebody who's in trouble and we hand it out. We give to people in our church. We know that there are needs in our church and we try to do what we can to help people in our church because we believe with all of our heart it reflects the love of God. We give to those in need outside of our church. It's one of the reasons that we love what Seeds of Hope is doing and and other ministries that we get to be involved in with Operation Christmas Child and Kids Alley stuff and places that we can share with people we don't know. People who are far away. People who can never give back to us. And then... We give personally because not everything is about us as a church collectively doing something. There are times where you represent Jesus in your life in just an individual way because God has called you to do that. And so I want to take you to Psalm 41 because that's the theme we see so often in Scripture that this is the way we ought to live. In the Old Testament, it was a big deal that God's people were generous with those who were in need. It was so 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 much of a big deal that if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, you will find chapter, actually several chapters on the idea that when you harvest, when you go out and you've put all the work in and you've paid for all of the, the, the seed and all of the workers and laborers and all that, when you go out to harvest, you are not to harvest everything. You are to leave some behind because there's a stranger or there's a poor person who's supposed to come by and be able to get some food from you. Because why? God's saying, I gave you this food recognize that and live like I gave it to you so you are generous with other people. I think that the New Testament equivalent, I think I actually lived the New Testament equivalent of that. Um, Guys, you might be able to identify with me on this. Whenever we go out to eat, at the end of the, the dinner, oftentimes they will bring you a dessert tray, right? You know the dessert tray? The either plastic or crusty old desserts that they bring out, right? And they're like, what do you want? What would you like for dessert? And I'm like, I don't know. What do we want? And she'd be like, oh, I don't want anything. Right? I'll just have a bite of yours. So I eat my dessert, but I leave a little bit. I like, you know, on the, like the harvest, I don't harvest all of it. I leave a little bit so that in case later somebody else wants a bite of it, they could, right? So I think I reflect that. Do you guys agree? Is that, 
That's good biblical stuff right there, right? But it was a huge deal for God's people to reflect the heart of God in generosity. Now today, this is a big political topic. And I will tell you, I hear this stuff, you know, we got the immigration thing going on and the migrants and the, the refugees and all this stuff, and I don't know the answers to all that. Truth is, I don't think any of you do either. I think sometimes we get sucked into thinking that if we raise our voice in some gotcha way, or we have some real outrage or, or, or something we can post or some clever picture with some clever words on it, that we've done something. I'm, let me just say this, church. Maybe this is a, a moment of freedom for you. God has not called you to fix the immigration crisis. Now, I'm not saying that there's not useful dialogue, but honestly, I'm not sure that anything that is going on right now in the current immigration discussion is concerned with solving it. I think most of it is about I'm right, you're wrong, I'm strong, you're weak. I think most of it's about that. And the rest of it is about I need to raise money for my next political campaign, so I need to get some outrage going. And because of that, I don't like to engage it at all because it's all to me poisoned it doesn't go anywhere good i'm not saying that's not a real issue i'm not saying my heart's not broken for that i'm also not saying that you guys whoever's out there outraged about all these migrant people i guarantee you didn't invite some homeless person into your house last week so you got some balancing to do in your own soul because there's some practical things in your life that you need to do about being generous with what god's given you instead of pointing your finger somewhere else You're not going to change the world by your witty critique. You're going to change the world by your love for people. And there are people right in front of you that you ought to be loving. So I'm just saying, there's lots of good discussion to be had. I'm not sure anybody's having it. I'm not sure anybody's interested in having it. And because of that, I would be really, really encouraging you to do what God puts in front of you. I know there are places that we can actually give, we can actually help, and I want to keep putting those opportunities in front of our church, and I want to keep our hearts tender to the places that God calls us to be His hands, His feet, to be sharers of what He has given to us. And so David in Psalm 41 talks about the Lord's view of those who help people in need, and I want the Lord to see me like this. I bet you want the Lord to see you like this. So we're just going to read these three verses, then we'll talk about each one. But Psalm 41, verse 1, 2, and 3, it says this, Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desires of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. Now, David here is kind of speaking, with, and he starts this whole thing off with this word blessed. What he's saying is, what kind of life should you want to live? What kind of person should you want to be? And the question kind of is raised, or the question is, the challenge is thrown out there with this word blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Are you blessed? You know, well, if I ask you that question, what do you look at to evaluate whether or not you are Someone that God has blessed. In part, this word can mean someone who is happy. In a deeper sense, it means someone who is clearly and visibly filled with joy. Someone that people around look and say, that person, wow, they're really living the life. They're really enjoying their life. They are someone who is 
blessed. But to go deeper than that, it is the person who is living the life that you should want. What kind of life should you want to live? You should want to live the blessed life. It is one who receives receives good from God because they are walking in a way that allows God to pour out His fullest blessing on their life. One who is held in high opinion by God. This word is used over and over again throughout Psalms, throughout Proverbs. Even Jesus uses this word in the New Testament uh, when we talk about the Beatitudes, blessed are these people and these people. And the word is used to, to, in, to kind of steer people towards what is good and right, what is upright, what is righteous, what is godly. That's what the word is used for. Blessed. The people that you should try to, I want that life, the, people who, the, the life that you want to live is a life that is blessed because God says, this is what I want you to do. This is what I think about these people. These people are where I want them to be. And so in this context, David says, here, I'm going to give you an easy one. What does God want? God wants you to help the weak. We can be done with that. If we could all grab that, we can be done. God wants us to help the weak. Now, let's just spend a few more moments talk about the weak. Because I think sometimes we talk about the weak, we talk about it theoretically. In some versions, the, the word here is poor. But the best translation of this is something that communicates the idea of people who have no power to help themselves. People who are helpless. If you consider that word, people who have no power to help themselves, now God wants you to help them. Not all of them. He hasn't given you enough so that you can help everybody. But God wants you to be in the business of seeing and helping people who have no power to help themselves. How much of that is happening in your life? Now, if you're a parent, it's happening by default. You have children that need to be provided for, and you're t- there is a reflection of the heart of God in that. It's why God chooses the word Father to speak about Himself. And so there is some of it that happens in our life that way. But is it something that characterizes your life with the weak around you, with those who are powerless to help themselves? The idea here is that we are to have regard for them. The idea of regard is to seek to understand what it is like to be them and to have a heart for them that you would wish they would have for you if the positions were reversed. An understanding heart. Can we say that we have that to the degree that we need to? Or is there room to grow? That we have a heart that regards the weak. That I would look at someone who is down on their luck or made awful choices and their life is in shatters and shambles and I look at them the way that they, I wish they would look at me if our positions were reversed. Can we say that? Because that's what this idea of regard is. To regard, have regard for the weak. It means a heart to help a heart of grace instead of criticism, a heart of hope instead of judgment or dismissal. It means a heart that doesn't look around in church and say, what's everybody else doing wrong that I should tell them about? A heart of grace, a heart of kindness, a heart of gentleness. I'm not saying there's not times for hard discussions. Hey man, you're doing this and, it's, and you're blowing it. But I am saying, I'm not looking for that. I'm not eager and and hungry for that. I'm eager to help. 
somebody. We interact with these opportunities. Maybe you don't recognize them, but but think with me. When do you find yourself in a position of advantage where you could help someone who doesn't have the power to help themselves? Some of you are, are young people. Some of you teenagers. You go to school. And you have your friends. Do you have an eye for people who don't have any friends? To have regard for the weak. Hey, you know what? Why don't you come over and be a part of our group? Or if my group won't accept you, I'm going to make our own new group over here. Christian young people should have regard for the weak. Do you? Or are you just glad that you got your friends? It could be very practical. You talk to someone after church who lost their job and, and, and you say, you know what, I want, to, I want to pay a bill for you. Or you know what, I know of an opening at my job, I'm going to put in a good word for you. This is people who are powerless to help themselves and you are saying, I'm going to do what I can to help you. Sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's just help for people. By the way, you know, sometimes churches talk about generation gap. You know, the old people, the young people, whatever. You know what old people have that young people could use? Connections in career. How healthy are we with that? You know, there are young people who are in high school that are looking for a summer job. You know, those of you who's got, who have jobs and connections, whatever, do you have a radar out for people who need a job over the summer? Or we got people who are graduating from college. Do we have any kind of connectedness where we're trying to like help people who need inroads into a career? Do, do we have any of that? See, we come and we, we take account of ourselves all the time very well. But God is saying, and David says here, God's heart is, should we be taking account of everyone else? Should we have a radar up for other people in need and not just so aware of our own wants and lacks? I would say to you today, if you've had conversation as you came into church today with any significant number of people, more than a handful or just a handful, you've probably already talked to someone today who is carrying an overwhelming load beyond what they ever imagined they'd be facing. Do you know that? In our church right now, in these seats all around you, are people who are probably carrying a load that they think will crush them. They're not sure they're going to make it. Maybe church is not all about you. Maybe life is not all about you. Now, maybe you're one of those people, but I'm telling you, sometimes when you're somebody who's carrying overwhelming load, you're like, I'm the only one. I'm telling you, there are literally dozens and dozens of people, and I've had conversations this morning with people about overwhelming loads I didn't even know were happening. It's what happens. And we have a heart of to regard the weak. Jesus said the same kind of thing in Matthew 25. He said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was without clothes and you gave them to me. I was sick and you visited me. The point was very clear. When I serve the helpless, when I serve the weak, when I serve the powerless, I'm serving Jesus himself. And so when David starts this off... Blessed is the one who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. What he's saying is, when you look out for those who are weaker than you, the Lord looks out for you. 
In fact, one of the greatest reasons that we help others is because we believe with an unshakable conviction that the Lord has already helped me. And because He has, in ways that are unspeakably large, I could never exhaust a heart that gives because my Father has given me so much. We lose track of that. We lose track of it in our soul, in the the gratitude of our soul. Could you imagine the influence and the passion and the life-changing force that the church of Jesus Christ would be if each church were filled with believers who lived out helping the weak? A heart for the disadvantaged. Why aren't we turning the world upside down? Maybe we need to look here. I would say in our church, we have a taste of it, and I love the heart that we have. But I'm saying today, don't stop. Let's grow. Let's grow in it. Because we have the greatest truth that anybody has ever known, that Jesus Christ was sent to die for the sins of every single person so that they could come to know Him, so they could be washed clean and have eternal hope and eternal life. Greatest truth you'll ever hear in your life. We have it. But practically speaking, we can't really share it if we aren't living like we've received the greatest gift ever. And the way you live like you've received the greatest gift ever is you are a giver. And I hope that we are in increasing measure. So part of helping people, part of sharing the message is helping those who need In verse 2, it talks about how the Lord protects and preserves them. One of the reasons we don't find the time or energy to help the weak is we consider ourselves to be weak. If you're sitting here today and I'm talking about the weak and you're like, yeah, somebody should help me, you missed the point. (laughs) And I'm not debating that you might be someone who is weak and might need help. But here's David in in verse 2. The Lord protects and preserves them. Where does my protection come from? Where does my preservation come from? Where does my sustaining power come from? They are counted as the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desires of their foes. What makes you safe and secure? What provides for your needs? Is it you keeping a constant watch on all of your business and making sure everything is working together the way that you want it to work in your life? Is that what does it? Because David says, it is the Lord who protects them. We look around at our lives and we look at our safety and we look at our security and we go, oh, it's not as safe as I want it to be. It's not as secure as I want it to be. So we turn up the volume and we amp up the power on our, on our efforts. We work like crazy to secure our lives. David says, you're wasting your time because it is the Lord who protects them and preserves them. Now, believers, I'm not saying be foolish, but have you lived this truth? Your security, your safety, your certainty about life is not about you making it happen. And if it isn't, isn't there great freedom in being just simply faithful to what God's asked you to do and not worrying about all that stuff? Some of the reason that we have no heart to help the weak is because we're like, well, I'll help them when I get the help I need. Let me tell you, if you're a believer, you've already got the help you need. Help beyond description. My goal is misguided when I'm putting my hope in my hard work or my intelligence, what I can control. 
By the way, David, who's writing the psalm, what was his job? What was his career path? What was his title? King. So think about that. He's saying, the Lord protects and preserves. I'm the king. Now, if you were king, have you ever said, if I were king for a day, I know exactly what I would do. I know some people who would be gone. You know, I would kind of like set some things. Like if I were king for a day, I would take my power and I would do what I think should be done because I have the power. David is king. And David says, I don't trust in my power. I don't trust in my say-so. I don't trust in my position. You know why? Because the Lord protects and preserves. My trust is in him. You watch David's life and you'll find that to be true. I just read a book that was called the, Three, the Tale of Three Kings. And, and the point of the book was that Saul, who rose to be king by the hand of God, saw his position as something to hold on to by his power and by his control. And David, when he rose to be king, saw his power and position as being held by God. So when Absalom rebelled against him, he said, you know what? If the Lord wants me to be king, he'll keep me king. If he doesn't want me to be king, I won't be king. And everybody around him freaked out. And David said, no, this is in God's hands. And I'm saying, sometimes in your life, what you hope for is more power, more say, more control. But what you should start with, what you should do is is the light should go on in your head and say, there's no hope in that. Because my hope is in my Savior, my God, my King. It is the Lord who protects and preserves. She said, well, I think I am trusting the Father. I think I am walking by faith. I think I do trust the Lord. Well, let me just, you can play this little game and and test yourself out. If you want to know what you're trusting for your protection, your preservation, for your survival, consider what it would feel like and what you would do if you lost something that would seem important. Let's say you lost your job. Let's say you lost your health. Let's say you lost a relationship. I'm not saying they wouldn't be sad and hard. But would it be the crumbling of the foundation of your life? Or would it be a storm you weather by digging down into the foundation that God is my protector and God is my preserver? If you can consider in that theoretical way having something go, the the reality is for all of us, we want to feel secure in what we can see, in what we can feel, in what we can control, in what we do. But David says we're blessed when the Lord is our protector and our provider. Now, these verses kind of give this sense that this inevitable deliverance, the Lord delivers them out of trouble and, and he does not give them over to the hands of their enemies and he restores them. And you're like, well, that sounds really great. But what happens when God doesn't do that? What happens when I trust the Lord and sickness still comes and death still comes and hardship still comes and he doesn't deliver me? That sometimes can be a huge problem for me in faith. Because preserving people, I don't think that what David is saying here from his own life and from the truth of Scripture is that you are exempt from tragedy or problems or even death. So whatever is getting said here, what if it's true in some way that you can't fully process, but it's true enough that God inspired David to write it, So that we could put our hope in it that God's plan for my life is the plan that I want. That that's the blessed life. And that by following him, by being a person who gives, a person who regards the weak, a person who looks out for the poor, who doesn't look out for my own welfare, but looks out for the welfare of others because that's what my Savior did for me. What if that's the way to live? 
Maybe today, the reason you feel unsafe, the reason that you are so vulnerable to all the doubt and fear that it has something to do with your, the generosity of your heart. Because blessed is the one who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them. The Lord preserves them. Maybe it all starts there. With recognizing how much I've been given. Recognizing how much God has done for me. And responding to it. The last verse there is about a sickbed. And this is probably written at the end of David's life. Many see it as an opportunity to throw David aside and take power. You can read the whole soap opera in 1 Kings 1. This son wants to be king and this son wants to be king and this mom comes his way and they're all trying to wrestle power because David who was strong is now weak. He is old and he can't do it for himself anymore and so he is the one who has you know, all these people ready to pounce. So David writes a song about a sickbed and about who is watching over his life. He says, you know, when I was young, when I had power, when I could do whatever I want, I tried to watch over the weak. And so I believe now God will watch over me. David didn't wait until he was desperate and had no choice. He chose to help the weak when he didn't have to. He chose to help the weak every opportunity that he had. Maybe it's because at one point he was the one on the run. If you've ever been in need, it gives you a heart for people in need, doesn't it? I'm saying connect to that. Let's connect to that. In a very real way, invisible way we are called to share jesus with people by sharing how he cares about them by how we care for them this is a principle that is throughout scripture from basically the first pages through the last page sometimes our care the way we share jesus is we share him with believers who are in hard times people in our church family or Christians that we become connected to and we share the love of Christ with them. They are not exempt from needing us to care for them, to look out for them, to have regard for them in their weakness. Other times, it's the ones who don't know Jesus, the ones who are far away and the struggles of their life have gotten in the way of them seeing any hope. And maybe the hope that we give them in a physical realm is the opportunity for them to see hope in an eternal realm. I think sometimes God brings people our way that clearly do not deserve help just to ask us if we are now judges. People who have received grace have now set themselves up as people who don't need it anymore and aren't interested in it. So the people who don't deserve it, they've made horrible choices and they've made decision after decision and their life has gone away and they've thrown away opportunity after opportunity. They don't deserve it. I pray we'll remember we didn't deserve it either. I pray that we will walk in generosity. I pray we will walk in humility, especially as we follow Jesus who chose both. So we're going to close in prayer and I'm just going to ask you, my invitation is not about any kind of music or coming forward. My invitation is you're about to walk out those doors. Guarantee you, you are going to bump into some people who need help. Are we ready? Are we ready to even ask God to use us in the lives of people who need help? Because if we are, I guarantee you He'll use you. And it won't be two years from now. It might be two minutes from now. But I pray the people of God will be ready 
to be people who believe that blessed is the one who has regard for the weak. Their hope is in the Lord. Let's stand together. We'll close in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed this morning. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you now, reminded again about your love for us. You have been so, so good to us. I pray, Father, that as we reflect on that, as you remind us, as your spirit prompts in our soul about your love for us that is beyond what we can even describe or or get our heads around, that your goodness for us reached to such a dark place, such a hopeless place, and, and brought life, healing, and change to us, that, Father, you would then send us out as your ambassadors in this world to reflect that love, that concern, that care, to the world around us. Father, I pray that this week you would direct us as your people, that you would make it obvious in front of us these opportunities to help those who need help. And that, Father, we would, by faith, rise up and set our own agendas and our own self-interest aside, rise up in generosity and give according to your word and by your Spirit's power. Take what we have talked about this morning and apply it to each of our lives, I pray. May we follow you with faith and faithfulness, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.